This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. Welcome back to Launchpad on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM, Channel 111. I'm your host this week, Carl Ulrich. I'm the Vice Dean of Entrepreneurship and Innovation at the Wharton School, where I teach entrepreneurship, innovation, as well as product design. I'm very happy to welcome to the show my next guest, Karthik Sridharan, who is the CEO and co-founder of Connect. Karthik, thanks for coming in. Thanks so much, Professor. I appreciate it. Hey, I, I think... I think it says in my notes you were a 2007 Penn grad. Is that right? That's right. Some say the greatest class ever, and by some I mean mostly just me. But yeah, I was class of 07 from Penn. I was a Wharton undergrad and also engineering. I studied uh, science in the engineering school. All right, great. But di- but I I don't remember having you in class. You did did you take class from me? I didn't. Your class was so hard to get into. You were always the superstar professor. But I had a lot of friends who were in your class and uh, really enjoyed it. So. Well, you have a future in PR, Carter. That's good. All right. All right. Well, it's really great to have you. And first things first, I'm going to point our listeners to your URL. It's Connect, which is K-I-N-N-E-K, K-I-N-N-E-K, connect.com. So, Kartik, give us the elevator pitch for Connect. Yeah, so, you know, we're basically a marketplace that helps small businesses with purchasing. So if you're a small business and a lot of listeners out there who either know of or are small business owners know, it's really difficult um, to be a small business, especially when it comes to purchasing. You're trying to buy equipment and machinery, bulk supplies. A lot of these are very customized purchases, and it's really hard to find suppliers. And it's difficult to go to a place like Amazon or eBay or Walmart and find what you need. And so we help these small businesses find suppliers. Uh, They come to our site, they create an RFQ, a request for quote, for whatever they need to purchase for their business. They specify what they need, and then we match them with suppliers who are relevant for those purchases. They get customized quotes through our platform, uh, and then they can compare those quotes, they can negotiate, they can evaluate those quotes using our ratings and reviews, and eventually they can choose a supplier and actually pay the supplier through our platform as well. And so our kind of vision is to build a platform that helps small business owners manage all of their purchasing in one place. Okay, so that's the vision, but you got to get started somewhere. So what, what segments have you, have you addressed initially? Yeah, it's a great question. So we've initially started with uh, um, food and beverage manufacturers more broadly. So there's a lot of wineries, breweries, distilleries, Um, There's food processors, uh, um, you know, those are the types of companies that kind of form the uh, majority of our initial uh, user base. And now we're starting to branch out into more adjacent uh, kind of sectors. So we have a lot of restaurants, bakeries, um, chemical companies, pharmaceutical companies, uh, even hotels and motels, a lot of lodging companies. Um, kind of businesses that are in adjacent spaces, they've started to kind of find connect and find us actually useful for what they need to buy. So, yeah. Um, yeah. Why, did, why did you start in food and beverage? So it, it was interesting. It was a little bit of a, a partially a fluke, partially by design. So my co-founder um, actually was uh, very knowledgeable about the winery space. Uh, he actually went to Cornell 
and they have a winery class there. Yeah. And, um, you know, it's close to wine country up, up in upstate. And so he actually knew a lot of wineries and really saw that there was a boom in craft brewing and craft winemaking. And so he kind of saw an opportunity there. Uh, but once we started to look into that, um, that kind of sector, we saw that there's a lot of interesting purchasing behavior that wineries and breweries do that are actually very relevant to other small businesses. I mean, they're also buying equipment and machinery, bulk supplies, in much the same way that other small businesses are in a lot of different sectors. So we kind of found that to be an interesting microcosm of the larger small business economy. So Yeah. So let's take a, a winery or a brewery for an example. What 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 kinds of things, well, actually, let me just ask it a different way. You, you were not stocking a catalog, per se. You actually allow them to put essentially anything in an RFQ. Is that right? Yeah, that's exactly right. So that was actually one of the initial innovations that we um, feel pretty proud of uh, at Kanak. And that was one of the reasons why we were successful early on, is that we took a lot of the learnings from what um, procurement-focused businesses had been doing, especially in the early 2000s, uh, which was mainly catalog-driven. And yeah. we kind of turned that on its head because, you know, there are a lot of businesses that are websites, rather, in the early 2000s that tried to focus on building a huge catalog of B2B products and then allowing small businesses to browse through those catalogs and purchase what they need. And it sounds good in theory, but in practice, what ended up happening was these small businesses saw that um, their requirements were actually pretty customized. You know, they may need to buy things in custom quantities, so they expect a bulk pricing discount, or they need to buy things that are actually very customizable. Um, they have custom specifications or custom requirements. And so those really lend itself more to RFQs, requests for quotes, and lend themselves more to negotiation with multiple suppliers to try to arrive at uh, a proposal that's right for you. And so that's kind of why we focus on what we initially focused on at Connect, which was the RFQ process. So. Mm -hmm. Um, now we're actually starting to branch out into uh, slightly more standardized products so small businesses can come to our site and if they're buying something more custom, they can create an RFQ, but they can also browse through the offerings of suppliers um, and look at list prices and place orders for more standardized products. But I think it helped our success early on to focus more on the RFQ because that's actually the bigger pain point for these small businesses when they have a very custom requirement and it's really difficult for them to find suppliers. So. Yeah, so I, I guess one of the things that strikes me just thinking about this is that you could have a very diverse list of stuff. So I can imagine a brewery might have uh, a need for um, 100,000 bottle caps, a, a new tank, uh, a valve, and, uh, and three tons of hops. And it's very unlikely that one supplier would be able to provide all of that. So how does that work? Do they break it up into, into chunks that are likely to be served by a single supplier? Or does your platform somehow manage that? Yeah, that's a, a really, really good question. Uh, uh, so we have had to kind of build a taxonomy of products and product categories. That's actually been one of the most difficult challenges of, of making a marketplace like Connect is thinking about how do you organize you know, all the possible products that a business could buy across many different sectors, um, it, it's, it's kind of daunting when you think about it. So right. uh, a lot of the work that we put in up front was thinking about that. And um, so once we kind of divided up all the different types of purchases that a small business could make into different broad product categories and subcategories, 
um, then it made things a lot easier. Uh, when we onboard a supplier, they give us information on which categories they, they cater to, and then our matching algorithm is able to then figure out, um, based on an RFQ of a small business, like which suppliers are most relevant for them. But you're right, there are some suppliers that cater only to one specific product right. category, uh, and then there are other suppliers that cater to many, many product categories. Um, that's kind of determined at the onboarding stage. So, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. And are, and would you characterize the majority of the suppliers as being essentially distributors or as being the original manufacturers of, of these products? Well, it's, it's a um, kind of a, a sad story about American manufacturing that most of our suppliers are. So all of our suppliers are actually based in North America, U.S. and Canada, yeah. but most of them are actually uh, distributors or yeah. resellers. Uh, they may buy their equipment or machinery or supplies from a factory in Asia or Europe, but most of them are resellers. The reason why we've kind of restricted ourselves to North American suppliers uh, at least in the initial phase of our company's growth, is that when you think about a small business or a medium-sized business, it's really difficult for them uh, when it comes to logistics and um, just import tariffs and currency issues and just general trust issues for them to be able to deal with a manufacturer in another right. country, especially right. with language barriers. So they tend to prefer dealing with suppliers that are regional. Yeah. Um, so that's kind of why we focused on that. Yeah. Karthik, where did this idea come from? Did you always dream of uh, being a, uh, a a brewery supply guy? Yeah, just as a as a young kid, I was always dreaming of building a B two B marketplace. Every yeah. kid's dream. Um, yeah, basically, the original idea actually was born from my co-founder's work experience, and he was at a uh, consulting firm called Oliver Wyman um, when well, he just graduated college, and he would always be sent out to these Fortune five hundred companies to help them improve their purchasing processes and the way that they choose vendors and uh, the way that they manage their purchasing. And we would always brainstorm about, okay, well, obviously Fortune 500 companies, like say a Boeing or an IBM, can afford to have a, uh, an expensive consultant help them uh, manage their purchasing, but what does the small business or even the medium-sized business do? And that, that kind of was a very uh, intriguing question for us. And when we started to delve deeper into that and actually talk to a lot of small business owners in and around New York City where we lived, we just saw that across the board, regardless of industry, small business owners found purchasing and supplier management extremely, extremely difficult. And it was just kind of, we were just incredulous about how antiquated their processes they were using were. I mean, some of these Small businesses are buying hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars worth of equipment and supplies every year. And they're doing it sometimes with paper trade directories and calling up a guy that knows a guy and just generally very um, old school methods. And we just felt like there was a power of inevitability of change there. So that's what mm -hmm. got us first excited about it. So Yeah. And what were you doing at the time? I was working at a quantitative hedge fund called AQR, which... Uh, is actually was actually started by a few uh, Penn alums. Um, is that but, Cliff yeah. Asnes? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. I was working there, and my co-founder and I had met each other when we were interns at J.P. Morgan the previous summer, and we had just stayed friends and kept in touch. So yeah. Um, so what possessed you? You're you're in you know many of your classmates and contemporaries they were they would kill for that for that job. What possessed you to to leave that to build a, yes, a B2B marketplace. 
Well, yeah, I mean, people ask me that a lot, and sometimes I even wonder what, what the heck possessed me <laughs> to actually leave yeah. that job and, and start Connect with my co-founder. But I think uh, there were many things. One was I, it was a great job, and AQR is a great company, and I actually met a lot of my best friends there. A lot of current employees of Connect actually were co-workers of mine at AQR, which I don't know if that makes them that happy, but... Um, but uh, it was a great place to work, but I think I got the itch to kind of start something on my own, and, um, you know, I, I guess uh, a lot of people who go to Warden can maybe identify with this, but you just have that entrepreneurial itch, and I just kind of felt that it was a good time to try something, you know, when you're young, when there's less risk, it just kind of felt like the right time to try something. And uh, I also kind of, as an engineering major, I was, you know, like I said, uh, in engineering as well as in Wharton, as a computer science major, I always had the desire to kind of build something, you know? I mean, that's kind of why you become an engineer. You feel like building something that can help a lot of people. And while working at a hedge fund was great, and you're working on quantitative, um, you know, stock selection algorithms, and that's exciting, it was a lot different of a... Uh, kind of excitement to build something that thousands or maybe millions of people would use on a day-to-day -day basis. So that's kind of what drew me to starting Connect. And I think at the end of the day, uh, for anyone who's thinking about starting a company, you really have to think about, you know, what's the worst that could happen, right? When we thought about it, uh, my co-founder and I, we thought, hey, I mean, we're going to give ourselves a few years to try this, uh, this venture out, and we're going to teach ourselves web development. We're going to teach ourselves how to fundraise. We're going to network and uh, uh, you know, build a strong network within the tech community. We're going to learn digital advertising. We're going to learn how to hire people. And we're going to do all these things that really we'd never get a chance to do working at our desk jobs at these big companies. And if it doesn't turn out to amount to anything, it's OK. You can go get another job, hopefully. Uh, and you've gained a lot of experience that um, you probably wouldn't have been able to get at another company. So that was kind of the thought process great attitude. If, if you're just joining us, you're listening to Launchpad on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM, Channel 111. I'm your host this week, Carl Ulrich. I'm Vice Dean of Entrepreneurship and Innovation at Wharton, and I'm speaking with Kartik Sridharan, who's the CEO and co-founder of Kinect. Uh, Kartik, so the, the perennial challenge in, in marketplaces, these are sometimes called two-sided markets or two-sided platforms, is to keep the two sides in equilibrium. And to put a finer point on that, if you convince some people to give the, the site a try, they post, they spend all, all day creating an RFQ, and then no one bids, it's, uh, you're not going to be very successful. So talk us through how you got it started and how you got critical mass uh, to, to get this marketplace to actually work. Yeah, that, that chicken and egg problem, as, as they call it, is, is a, an always and forever challenge for marketplaces, right? So, I mean, every marketplace from Lyft to Uber to, you know, eBay to uh, Airbnb has that issue, and we did as well. I think there were some interesting uh, uh, nuances of our marketplace, specifically because it was B2B, that actually made the chicken and egg problem a little bit less daunting. So, um, uh, I guess the the first thing we did right, I think, was to really restrict ourselves initially to uh, a narrow subset of businesses. Like we talked yeah. about wineries and breweries were our initial target subset, and we've expanded since then. But initially, it's important to kind of make it, make sure you don't 
uh, bite off more than you can chew. And in an analogous way, you know, Lyft and Uber started in the Bay Area. They didn't try to get drivers in every city in the world right off the bat, right? So we started in a small sector. And so that restricted that set of products that we actually needed to go out there and get supply for. But still, your point is valid. I mean, how do you jumpstart this thing? Uh, the interesting thing about our B2B marketplace is that the average dollar value of these RFQs is really high, uh, ah. much higher than for a consumer marketplace. Uh, so that helped us a lot because when someone created an RFQ, it was usually for tens of thousands of dollars. Um, and so it's a lot easier for you to take that RFQ, even one unit of demand, and go to suppliers and say, hey, listen, I have someone who's looking to buy $50,000 worth of supplies or some piece of equipment. Do you want to submit a quote for that? Uh, it's hard to turn that down. That's a lot of expected uh, value to leave on the table, right? Whereas if you're a consumer marketplace, which much smaller ticket values, it's a little bit trickier. It's hard to go to someone and say, hey, I have a, a buyer who's looking to buy a $5 pair of mittens. Do you want to submit a custom quote? I mean, that's not going to happen, right? And the other thing that helped us was um, there's a, an inherent time lag between when a small business uh, needs quotes and when they're actually requesting quotes. And part of that is actually because of the, uh, just the antiquated nature of the way that small businesses um, find suppliers today. You know, they're used to searching through trade directories, calling up 20 people, you know, leaving voicemail messages, emailing a bunch of people, praying that someone's going to respond to them in a right. couple of days. And so they're not as time sensitive as consumers are. They don't need that instant gratification necessarily. You know, they create an RFQ and they say, hey, uh, let me know in a couple of weeks when someone uh, has a quote ready for me. And so if we're able to actually provide them a quote within a day, which we usually are within actually a few hours, we're able to provide um, usually four or five quotes on average, that's actually pretty excellent as an experience for them. So um, those two things actually make the chicken and egg problem a little bit less daunting for us compared to some other marketplaces. But uh, um, yeah, it's still something you have to manage and managing that liquidity of your marketplace is critical, right? Because if a, if a buyer comes to your site and is looking to uh, you know, get quotes and you don't have suppliers for them, it's really hard to kind of dig yourself out of that hole when it comes to convincing them to come back. Um, in the yeah. same way that if you requested a ride on Uber and you didn't get a car, you're probably less likely to try the app again, right? So Yeah. You know, something I learned from that explanation, which I thought was really interesting, was this idea that in certain markets, you you guys yourselves can use the the buy side demand to go then pull a supplier uh, onto the platform. And that's mm -hmm. quite powerful. But as you point out, can only be done if the ticket size is 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 reasonably high. How, how, to what extent are you still doing that? Is that is it? Are most of these transactions happening automatically now, or is there still a fair bit of handholding that's required to get things to match? So the the matching algorithm is is pretty advanced now. Um, it, it took us a while to get there, and a lot of iterations, uh, of course. But uh, the matching algorithm for you know kind of connecting a an RFQ with the relevant suppliers uh, is is fully automated now. But I think the, the manual part is involved with onboarding a supplier onto the platform mm -hmm. and kind of getting them to understand how the platform works because submitting customized quotes through a platform like this is pretty new. Uh, I mean, that's 
that's the exciting part. We're kind of pioneers in this area, but it also creates a, an educational burden on you to really teach these suppliers how to use the platform and what it means to be a supplier on a platform like Connect. So that's really where the handholding comes in. Uh, but on an ongoing basis, the matching algorithm is built using machine learning, so it actually gets stronger and more accurate over time as we see more RFQs in a, a specific product category. Um, so yeah, that's, that's kind of uh, built to be a well-oiled machine. Um, but uh, initially, when we first started, as I'm sure a lot of people uh, who are listening who have ever been involved with the marketplace know, an early stage marketplace, a lot of the matching was done very manually. But mm -hmm. uh, there's learnings to be had there, right? I mean, you do the matching manually initially, and that helps you discover which factors should be um, weighted more heavily in your matching algorithm, and eventually you can make it fully automated, which is kind of the process we went through. Yeah. Um, if if I can believe Crunchbase, it looks like you've raised a little bit over thirty million dollars, which is a lot of money in the in the venture space. I wonder if you walk us through a little bit the fundraising process and what you had to prove initially in order to attract capital. Capital. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, we've gone through uh, our what's known as our Series B at this point. So that's the third third stage of funding, you know, we started off raising our seed round and then Series A and then Series B uh, a few years ago. Um, but uh, yeah, for, uh, for a marketplace like us, um, when it comes to seed, seed round, I think the, the thing that you need to prove is A, is this a big target market? Um, you know, is this a major structural problem that needs to be solved? And that's probably the most important thing because mm -hmm. I think at the seed stage, investors recognize that, hey, this is, there's a long slog ahead and there's probably a lot of mistakes that are gonna be made and that's okay, that's to be expected. But if it's a very, very narrow target market, like you know, if it's Indian food delivery in you know, 19104 zip code in Philly, that's great, but that's such a small market that you can't really screw up much more than a couple times before your entire market is, is shot. And uh, even then, it might not be an exciting enough market, even if you execute perfectly. Whereas if you have a much bigger market, say B2B purchasing across all small businesses, that ends up being a lot more interesting. So that's number one thing. I think the number two thing, especially for our marketplace, is can you show that there are you know, buyers and suppliers that you've been able to match that otherwise would not have been able to find each other? And can you show that um, transactions can, could have been facilitated by you? And uh, it doesn't necessarily need to be in an automated way. And this goes to your earlier point. I think the bigger question at the seed round is, is there demand and is there supply out there? And have you proven that you can connect them in a meaningful way? Mm -hmm. And um, even if you had to do it manually, that's fine an investor can then make a decision as to whether or not to give you money in order to automate things and scale things up. Um, you know, once you get to Series A, I think you raise money uh, based on the traction you've shown you could, you could get using the money you raised for your seed round. And investors will give you money if they feel like, okay, you are now ready to really scale this business out. And by the time you get to Series B, I think you really need to have proven that your unit economics are working. You know, this is a well-oiled machine. You put in X dollars at the top of the funnel and it spits out, you know, X uh, times some factor, you know, and that's kind of what you need to be proving out. It's, 
you don't want to be trying to figure anything out anymore. You've figured out your unit economics, and the only question now is, you know, how do you get much more, um, yeah, how do you get more GMV, which is gross merchandise value? That's what a lot of marketplaces use as their top line metric. It's the dollar value of uh, deals that you're facilitating through your platform. So those are kind of the stages that we went through. But uh, yeah, fundraising is always an interesting exercise. It teaches you how to sell your company and it teaches you uh, really about your company and what the uh, most exciting parts of your company are. Uh, but it's also really tiring. So as any founder will tell you. All right. Well, you seem like you've 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 got it under control, and you do a great job of explaining this stuff. I can mostly just listen, uh, which is really awesome. So, uh, Kartik, we're we're out of time, but thanks so much for making the time to join us today. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks so much, and thanks for um, you know hosting this program. It's a it's really great. I love listening to it. So, all right. Uh, thanks yeah. so much. Absolutely. All right. For more information about Connect, you can go to Connect. That's just K I N N E K. Connect.com. That just about does it for today's show. If you've got a question about something you heard or have suggestions for companies or guests you'd like to hear, send us a note. Our email address is businessradio at SiriusXM.com. To follow me, go to my website, ktulrich.com. That's K-T-U-L-R-I-C-H. Or follow me on Twitter, at ktulrich. I'd like to thank today's guests, Adriana Vasquez, CEO and founder of Lilu, Craig Walker, CEO and founder of Dialpad, Summer Crenshaw, COO and co-founder of Tiller, and Kartik Sridharan, CEO and co-founder of Connect. Thanks also to producer Brian Drew, our assistant producer Charlene Gatto, and engineer Tatiana Zamis, and Nellie Gaynor, associate director at the Wharton School. And thank you for joining us for today's show. I'm Carl Ulrich, Vice Dean of Entrepreneurship and Innovation at Wharton, and you've been listening to Launchpad on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM 111. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play. Oh, 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 o